Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to another installment of the Double-Edged Sword program here on KRTT and KVDM 88.1 FM, the voice of divine mercy for the greater Ellis and Barton County metroplexes. Um, you should be able to get our signal pretty well if you're in Ellenwood or if you're in Hoisington, certainly in Great Bend. And up here in Ellis County, we seem to reach out um, to all four points, north, south, east, and west of Hayes pretty easily, getting up to um, Plainville and over to Russell, down to La Crosse, and, and over to Ellis. And so again, with two radio stations, it's, be, it's great to be able to reach out to more folks. I always like to remind folks on Double-Edged Sword, you know, on a, in a Sunday sermon, your pastor can, you know, maybe go into eight or ten minutes worth of detail and stuff. But um, on Catholic Radio, we have the, the luxury of being able to delve into things a little bit more detail and kind of um, dig into the subtle nuances a little bit. So between um, the Hayes and, and Great Bend areas, we're, we're glad to be able to reach out on KVDM and KRTT. Today, I was going to try to delve into the idea of sacrifice a little bit. Because, you know, there's a lot of things, one of the things I've learned in my 20-some years as a priest is there's a lot of ideas and words that get thrown around, and people just kind of say it, and before long it becomes part of the vocabulary, and people talk about these things, and you hear about it. But then when you really ask, what does that mean? What's behind that? What do we mean when we say, for example, sacrifice, since that's the, the topic for today? When we're talking about sacrifice, what do we mean? We talk about the sacrifice of the mass. We talk about the ancient Jewish sacrifices, you know, the Hebrew people and their animal sacrifices at the temple. And uh, we talk about Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross. And then to this day, in our own times, we'll talk about little personal sacrifices when we, we try to show patience to someone that, that causes us a little bit of difficulty or generosity when people ask for our resources, our time, whatever, these little sacrifices that we make. And we just kind of go, well, what's the point behind all this? What are we doing? And I think to really to try to delve into this a little bit, what we're going to do on, the, on this installment of the program here is we're going to go back and we're going to look at a lot of the Old Testament stuff about sacrifices. And some of it I'll just describe sort of qualitatively, and then others will go into a lot of detail, reading primarily from the books of the prophets Amos, Isaiah, and um, from the books and from the Psalms, because that's where we have a lot of the explanations of what God expects out of the sacrifices of folks back in those days. Then we'll progress into the New Testament, and then we'll talk about what sacrifice means in our own time. Because, again, I think these are things that you know, people talk about a lot, but nobody really knows what it means. I'm sure anyone with just even kind of a cursory knowledge or understanding of the, of the faith, you know, we would know that, for example, within the old days in the, in the ancient, with the ancient Hebrew Levitical priesthood, they would sacrifice animals. You know, you would bring an animal to the priest, and the priest would slit its throat, and they would collect the blood. And, um, and then some or all of the animal would be burned up to God, and they would start to have a blazing fire going. They would throw the animal's carcass on it, and they would burn it. Now, that's kind of in the, that's the most general um, way of talking about it. But there were various ways they would sacrifice. Sometimes, you know, there, because back in those days, blood was seen as something that was very sacred. It was like liquid life. Everybody knew that if you cut someone, you cut someone's femoral artery, and all their blood drains out, they die. Well, in the ancient mind, you know, under, you know in the ancient understanding of um, physiology and stuff that they had, they would look at the, this puddle of blood on the floor, and they would say, well, the guy's life leaked out of him. You know, that's why he's dead. You know, the life is out there. They're on the ground right now. 
And so therefore, when you intentionally, you know, slit the throat of a, of a bull or a sheep or a goat or something, and you drain the life out of it, well, there was, you know, the life was in that bowl that you collected the blood in. And then the altar on, on which they had the sacrifices, it had four horns on it. They would um, anoint the tips of the horns with, with blood. And, um, and this was one of the ways that, that the altar itself would be purified before the sacrifice was offered. Now, again, this all sounds really odd because nobody's really done this for thousands of years, but it's kind of necessary to kind of do some of this homework, some of this background work before we can understand you know, what the value of a sacrifice in our own time is, particularly the sacrifice of the mass, because as Catholics, that's what we're going to be most interested in. So the deal was, though, is again, back in those days, they, they would kill the animal and then some, depending on what they would do, sometimes they would take the fat out of it and they would burn the fat up to God. The people would eat the, you know, the person bringing the sacrifice and would eat the meat and they would leave a portion of the meat for the priest because that's how the priest made his living was doing the sacrifices and so on. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds kind of cheap. They're burning the fat up to God and keeping the meat for themselves. But you have to remember, first of all, even in our own times, you know, what gives a ribeye steak, you know, the, you know, we have various grades. There's USDA good, USDA select. USDA Choice and USDA Prime. And prime rib, as you all know, is a very expensive cut of meat. And what makes the prime rib prime? The fact that, the, that it has fat marbled all the way through the, through the meat so that when you cook it, the fat melts and makes the meat very tender. The other thing, too, is with food, with, you, know, you stop and think about everything that we eat. Is if, you, if you take water out as, a, as, an, as an ingredient, because water's in just about everything, but everything that we eat is made up of either fiber, carbohydrate, fat, or protein, all right? So like, for example, if you eat an apple, you know, there's lots of fiber in the apple. That's why the doctors like us eating apples. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. And there's carbohydrate, there's sugar in it, okay? A um, little bit of protein, not much, but some, practically no fat. On the other hand, if you look at an avocado, you know, an avocado's got fiber and avocado's also got a lot of fat in it too. Supposedly it has those oils that they want us to eat that's pretty good. If you look at a piece of bread, you know, bread is gonna have some protein, a lot of carbohydrate and a lot of starch and so on, pasta and so on. So you look at all these various things. Well, the various components, like for example, fiber has no dietary calories to it at all because the human digestive tract can't digest it. But protein and carbohydrate, you know, um, protein and basically sugar, those I think have around 18 calories per gram. On the other hand, fat, oil, you know, things like olive oil, butter, animal fat, things like that, it's like 36 calories per gram. It's very, very calorie dense food, which is again why in our day and age, you don't want to eat that much of it. But back in the times of the ancient Israelites and back in the time of Christ, food was very scarce. They didn't have the golden corral back then. And so you, you wanted to eat as much fat as you could because it had the most calories in it. It could keep you alive the longest. And so such things as olive oil and animal fat and things like that, these things were very highly prized. And so to take the fat portions of the animal and burn it up to God, that was a sacrifice. All right. Now, then the other thing is that there, there were certain animals, not the, you know, probably you know, most commonly would be um, things like cows, sheep, goats, and so on, that you were never supposed to just simply slaughter the animal like we do today. You know, it goes to the, goes to the meat packing plant or the slaughterhouse, or whatever, you know, they kill it, ble you know, bleed it out and gut it and then start cutting it up for meat and so on. And it's just, you know, it's just a business. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing, nothing spiritual to it at all. 
for the ancient Hebrews, they were expected to not just slaughter an animal, they were expected to sacrifice it. Every animal was to be sacrificed to God. And so you, one of the things you'll read about him when you read the Old Testament, they'll talk about the high places. When you went through the Old Testament world, of course, there was the temple, especially after Solomon got it built. So you had Solomon's temple that went up around, oh, around 1000 BC, 900 BC, something like that. And so Solomon's temple was up and, you know, there were sacrifices going on there all the time because people would bring the meat that they were going to eat for the week or whatever. If someone's going to kill a goat or a sheep or whatever, they would bring it in. You know, the temple priest would, would slaughter it, you know, bleed it out, you know, and then the people would take it home and gut it and clean it and everything and, and, and eat it. But um, back in those days, if you were going to, if you were slaughtering an animal just for your family's consumption, it was expected to be sacrificed. And so again, you know, you would take it to one of the high places if you lived too far away from Jerusalem, or if you lived close enough, you went to Jerusalem itself. But you would take, you would, you know, again, they would they would bleed it out, take some of the blood, do the ceremonial rituals and so forth with it, and that's how they handled, you know, the sacrificing of of just kind of daily meat. Then, you know, when you have the really solemn high feasts like Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement and things like that, there would be even more elaborate um, celebrations and, and rituals for the various sacrifices. So the thing is, that's what the folks were required to do. Now, there's a reason why they were required to do that. And I guess I'll go ahead and talk about that right now, but I'm almost kind of tipping my hand a little bit too early here. But the thing of it is, is you, you ask yourself the question, why? Why would God require the people to sacrifice animals to him? When God himself says, and again, this will be some of the Old Testament stuff we'll read about. In Psalm number 50, God says, you know, he's talking through the mouth of the psalmist, but it's God that says this. Listen, my people, I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. God, your God, am I. So, you know, God's establishing himself. I'm God here. You're not. And then God says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are always before me. In other words, what this, what this acknowledges is at the temple, in Solomon's temple and later on in Herod's temple, this would have been the temple that Jesus walked around in because, again, Solomon's temple was finished about the year 950 B.C. or somewhere around there. And in 587 B.C., it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so it had about a 300-year run there. And then it remained destroyed for some time until Herod started building a new one about 100 B.C. And um, once, they, once they got started on that one, I think it was more like about 50 B.C. But anyway, once they got, they got that one put up, it was even bigger and more opulent than Solomon's temple was. And it stood until 70 A.D. when the Romans accidentally burned it down. But um, the thing of it is, is when you went to Jerusalem, if you were walking towards Jerusalem, of course, that's how people got around back in those days, you would smell the temple long before you saw it because the sacrifices were going on all day long. People were bringing their animals in. Um, probably even the guy that ran the local meat market would bring all the animals in, have them sacrificed in the temple so he could bring them back to his meat shop chop up the meat, put it out for sale, and the people that buy it, with that bought it, you know, the, the pious Jews that bought it, would know that it had been sacrificed to God. And so the whole thing is, as God says here in Psalm 50, your burnt offerings are always before me. Well, it's because they were. You know, again, that part of the, the priest's duty at the temple in Jerusalem every morning was to stoke the fire up to start burning the sacrifices. So then God says, I will not take a bull from your house or goats from your herds. For every animal of the forest is mine, beast by the thousands on my mountains. 
I know every bird in the heights, whatever moves in the wild is mine. Were I hungry, I would not tell you, for mine is the world and all that fills it. In other words, God's saying there in Psalm 50 verse 12, you know, he, he's kind of making a whole bunch of, of sort of rhetorical points here. He says, were I hungry? Well, for one thing, God doesn't get hungry. We know that. But God says, you know, even if I was hungry, I'm not going to tell you about it because the world and everything in it is mine anyway. In other words, God's saying, if I cannot consume everything in the world and still, and if I do that and I'm still hungry, what good is your piddly little sacrifice going to do me? See, they're all, these are all kind of rhetorical points. Then God says, do I eat the flesh of bulls? The answer, of course, is no. Or drink the blood of goats? The answer, of course, is no. Offer your sacrifice of praise to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Then call on me in the day of distress. I will rescue you and you shall honor me. So there we get the first clue as to why God was requiring the sacrifices of the people. That is to say, if you go back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, and then, furthermore, if we, go in, if we go into the book of Exodus, whenever Moses is getting the folks out of Egypt, we see there that in the ten plagues, whenever um, God's going to visit the ten plagues upon Egypt, what's the first plague? The first plague is water turned into blood. God changes the water in the Nile into blood. And the second plague is the frogs. Now, this is kind of interesting because back in those days in ancient Egypt, the Egyptians worshiped the Nile River as kind of a god, and they had pretty good reason for doing that. I mean, you know, again, they're pagans, and they had it wrong because they didn't acknowledge the God of heaven and the Father of Jesus. We understand that. But, you know, you kind of got to give the, give the Egyptians their due. And, the, you know, the, the Nile River is the only river in the world that, that flows south to north. It, you know, it starts down in, in, in Africa, and then it flows north and dumps off into the Mediterranean Sea. And Egypt, of course, we know is a desert. But down further south in Africa, it's like a jungle down there, and it would rain a lot during the rainy season, and the Nile would fill up, and then the Nile would, um, as it flowed north into the, into the Mediterranean, it would pick up all kinds of silt and organic rotting stuff with it. And when it flew out of the Nile Delta, it would um, deposit all that into the, into the fields of the Egyptians. And, of course, the Egyptians are pretty clever, and they built irrigation canals to carry that Nile River even further into the desert. And so whenever the water would, would overflow, it would, that's how the, how the Egyptians were able to grow their food. And in fact, back in those days, the Egyptian, Egypt was actually kind of like the Kansas of the Mediterranean world. It was the breadbasket. Um, but in order for the Egyptians to grow all that wheat and then to ship it all over the, the Mediterranean world, which was very important during the time of the Roman Empire because Rome was very hungry for, for wheat and for food, in order for that to happen, the Nile had to do its thing. The Nile had to flood every year. And so the Egyptians prayed to the God of the Nile, and they sacrificed the God of the Nile because if the God of the Nile didn't do his thing, then there was no food, and then, of course, they'd be in a world of trouble. The thing of it is, then, is since the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, they also worshipped about everything else about the Nile. And so they had kind of a crocodile god from the Nile crocodile, and they also, to a certain extent, worshipped the frog, you know, because frogs would hang out in the Nile as well. And so you have in the first plague, God turns the, the Nile into blood. And the second plague, you have the, the plague of the frogs, all right? And so then, you know, once the frogs, you know, come out over the place and they're, they're um, overrunning everything, it says, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord and take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. And then Moses kind of gets a little dig on Pharaoh. He says, kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and for your officials and for your people that the frogs may be removed from you from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. 
And Moses says, as you say, that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. And so Moses then prays to God, and God calls the frogs back. Well, in doing that, there's a couple of things that happen here. Number one, Pharaoh has to recognize that the frog is not the God. The God of heaven is the God because it's the God of heaven that makes the frogs come forward and makes the frogs retreat back into the Nile. Also then, it says the frogs died in the houses and the courtyards of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Okay, so you have these dead frogs over the place, and it stunk. And so when you have these heaps of dead frogs and the frogs obeying the command of the God of Moses, that's kind of God's way of visiting his judgment upon the people of, of Egypt and showing them who the true God is. It's the same thing when he turns the Nile into blood. When the Nile gets, you know, gets polluted and turned into blood, then that's, that's the, the visitation of God's judgment coming down upon the, the, God, the, the false gods of the Egyptians. And then in the fifth plague, then, God sends a pestilence, sends a disease upon the livestock of the Egyptians. Again, the Egyptians were, they worshipped a, a bull god. They called him Apis, A-P-I-S. And um, by God then visiting this disease and pestilence upon the, the livestock of the Egyptians, not of the Israelites, but just the Egyptians, then again, that's God visiting his judgment upon these false gods. So the whole thing is then, again, when we kind of get back to our question, What's going on then with these sacrifices? Because what, what it says in Psalm 50 is that what God wants is a sacrifice of praise, all right? If we look in the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 8, Amos had the unenviable task of having to prophesy to the people of Israel during a time when it was very prosperous. People were making a lot of money. And, um, and here's what Amos says. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell our grain and the Sabbath ended that we may market our wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, and even selling the, the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn to him by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Now, again, this is poetic language. This is, this is prophetic language. What God is calling the Israelites on the carpet for here is, is again, this idea that he says, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? In other words, you, know, you have these people that grudgingly accept the fact that there are these holy days, the new moon feast, that there would be the, um, and on the Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath. And they're just figuratively speaking, you know, counting down the seconds. It's like, okay, you know, the dumb Sabbath is over with now. Now we can get back to business. And they've, they've completely lost the idea of what it meant to keep the Sabbath and what the, what the holy days were all about. You know, it's kind of like the same idea that some folks have in our times when they sit there and they think, well, you know, if, if I go to Mass and if I show up, if I hear the reading of the gospel and if I watch the priest go to communion, I've been to Mass and I've got that out of my way. Or, you know, you'll have people say, well, we like to go to Father so-and-so's Mass because his is shorter. I'm going to really stop and think about that. If Mass lasts... 50 minutes as opposed to an hour, you just, you know, save, quote unquote, 10 minutes. Now, what are you going to do with that 10 minutes? Is it that really that important? You know, oh, well, you know, Father so-and-so, he gets through with Mass in 45 minutes, and Father, other guy, you know, he, he takes an hour and five minutes, okay? You got out 20 minutes early. What are you going to do with that 20 minutes? Is that 20 minutes really that important? This is what God's asking about here. And then he goes on talking about, he says, skimping the, on the measure and boosting the price. Or he's just talking about people ripping people off, cheating with dishonest scales. 
And then he says, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, taking advantage of the poor and of their situation in poverty so that, so that someone else can profit off of them. And it says, the Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Well, see, again, what God's talking about here is these empty practices of piety, empty acts of devotion. And that's, you know, not what the sacrifice is all about. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah has a fairly long um, introduction here at the very beginning of the, of the prophecy, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah says, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. This is kind of an interesting thing. When in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, the ox knows his master, the donkey knows his, his owner's manger, where do we later run into the ox and the donkey in the manger? Of course, that's at the birth of Jesus. And so you can see the, the gospel writer, St. Luke, whenever he picks up on this, he's, he's kind of, you know, picking up on Isaiah chapter 1, and he said, you know, where Isaiah says, look, even these dumb animals, you know, the ox and the donkey know who feeds them and knows who takes care of them, but Israel does not know, my people does not, does not understand. And so then by the time Jesus rolls around, when, he, when he's born, you know, who should be looking for him? The smart people, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, and, you know, all the, the professional religious people should be out looking for the, the, the birth of the Messiah, and they miss it. And who sees it? The ox and the donkey. So, again, this is why it's important to know our Old Testament that it enriches, it enriches our understanding in the New Testament. But then God goes on to say, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, the people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of your burnt offerings of rams and, and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs of goats. When you come to a beer before me, who asks this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer your prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. So God's just got through from verses 10 to 15 there, reading the Hebrews, the riot act, about the emptiness of their, of their acts of piety and devotion. But then what does he say? Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And so there we see, you know, what, you know, kind of what God's really after. So now, now that we've kind of laid down all this, all this homework, it's time to talk a little bit then about, you know, what the whole point behind the sacrifice is. Um, but before we do that, we're going to take a little break here, and um, we'll, um, we'll be back in just a few seconds, so stay right there. Again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the pastor at St. Joseph's Parish here in Hayes, and also the chaplain at the Como Catholic Campus Center, and you are listening to KRTT and KVDM 88.1, the voice of divine mercy for Ellis and Barton Counties, and um, this is the, the Double-Edged Sword program where we are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, and we'll be right back so stay tuned.
Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword program here on KBDM 88.1 FM and KRTT, also 88.1 FM. Um, KBDM broadcasts out of Hayes, KRTT out of Great Bend. We're glad to have these two radio stations to be able to bring you the Double-Edged Sword program, where we are definitely cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. On today's installment of the Double-Edged Sword program, we are talking about sacrifice and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And we spent the first part of the program here kind of going through some choice parts of the Old Testament from the book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 1, from Amos chapter 8, and Psalm 50, where um, God is basically talking about what he doesn't like about the sacrifices. Now, this is sort of an interesting thing because in, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, God lays out very clearly, he explains to the Hebrews that he expects sacrifices. He wants these animal sacrifices and he wants them to be sacrificed to him in a specific way. He's very clear about this. This is really quite remarkable because in a lot of the Old Testament, as we know, in a lot of the Bible, as we know, sometimes, you know, the, it's, the Holy Spirit leaves it purposely kind of ambiguous sometimes even kind of paradoxical, you know, like whenever Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first and, you know, the greatest will be the one who serves the, serves the, the needs of all and so on. Well, you know, sometimes you know, it's almost like there, there are sort of two things that are in contradiction to each other when in fact they're just paradoxes that invite us to kind of think about it. But other times, though, God can be very, very explicit and very, very clear about exactly what he wants. And in the Old Testament, he is very explicit and very clear is exactly how these various sacrifices are to be offered, whether it's a sin offering, whether it's a thanksgiving offering, whatever, whatever you know, an offering of atonement, whatever it might be. God is very clear that, number one, he expects these, uh, these sacrifices to be made, and number two, he expects them to be done in a very specific way. So after he tells the people to do that, then he goes on and reads them the riot act, as we saw in Amos 8, Isaiah 1, and Psalm 50. You know, I don't like your sacrifices. I hate them. I loathe them. I don't want to listen to them anymore. I can't, you know, do you think I eat the flesh of bull or drink the blood of goats? Get these things out of my sight. Well, because what does God really want and why does he want it? Well, here's the kind of the crux of this whole program. What happened was back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God. They thought they could be their own God. And in fact, that was part of the devil's temptation. God, the devil, you know, the, the serpent comes up to, to the woman Eve and says, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? In other words, he's trying to evoke sort of a sense of, of jealousy or anger out of her saying, well, no, yeah, it's terrible. You know, we have all these wonderful trees and we can't eat. But, you know, the woman's smart. She knows, no, we can eat from any of the tree in the garden we want, just the one in the middle we cannot eat from. For God has told us if we even, if we eat it or even touch it, we will die. Well, he never told him not to touch it. He just told him not to eat from it. But the whole thing is, is that then the devil says, ah, but you will not die. Well, that's a good thing. No, the devil says, God knows that the moment you eat of it, you will become like God's knowing good from evil. In other words, if you eat from the tree, you won't just have to take what God tells you on faith and at face value. You know, that if God tells us that we should honor our parents, that we should feed the hungry and clothe the naked, that we should not steal, that we should keep holy his Sabbath and so on. Well, the easiest thing to do is, for all of us is just to go, well, he's God. We're not. If he says it, I'll do it because he's smart and I'm dumb. I mean, it's probably the easiest way to do it. But the thing of it is, is human pride being what it is, 
none of us really wants to be told what to do. And we find, especially in the, the higher levels of academia, um, you look at the people that, that are, you know, that make all the noise on the TV news programs and things like that, all these people who claim to be so hyper-educated, to anyone that would say, well, you know, the scriptures say X. You know, the scriptures say marriage is between one man and one woman, and since it's in the Bible, that's good enough for me. Oh, well, that's because you can't think for yourself. That's because you've got that Bible doing your thinking for you. Oh, you have that religion, that crutch, because you can't think for yourself and make your own choices. You have to have that religion to, to tell you what to do. Well, I don't need your religion. I can do what I want because I'm educated. I make my own choice. Well, that's kind of the sin of Adam and Eve in a nutshell. They didn't want to be dependent upon God for divinely revealed truth. They wanted to write their own truth. And, um, and that's you know, exactly what goes on to this day. Why can we murder unborn babies? Why can we redefine marriage at whim? Because we just write our own truth. You know, there is no truth from God because there is no God in, in a lot of these people's minds. And so we see that back in the days of Adam and Eve, they wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to be their own God. Go a little bit further in, into, the, into the book of Genesis, we have the Tower of Babel. What's the Tower of Babel all about? The people are on earth. They're suffering the consequences of original sin. And now they're saying, you know, it would really be cool if we could get back to our pre-original sin condition and get to heaven. It's just that we don't want to have to depend on God to do it. And so let's just build this tower and we'll get back up to heaven by ourselves and we'll do it without God. And of course, as you know, God confuses their speech and, and the, the tower goes unfinished. But the whole point, though, is, is again, you see this, this constant thread going through the prehistory parts of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 10, telling us that there is this something inside of the rebellious nature of humanity that says we want to do it on our own. And part of wanting to do it on our own is also this idea that once I accomplish something, I did it myself. Well, you know, for example, someone says, well, yeah, you know, I worked hard. I got that advanced degree. I got that MBA. I got my doctorate in whatever, you know, psychology or whatever. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm the one that did that. I'm the one that stayed up all those nights studying and going to all these classes and working and writing papers and writing my dissertation. I did this. Or, you know, later on, you know, someone builds up a successful business. Well, of course it's my business. Of course it's a success. You weren't there when I was working 85 hours a week and getting by on three hours of sleep a night. You know, then, you know, of course I have a nice home because I worked for it. All right. Well, what happens is, and it's part of our human nature, is that as we build things up, we tend to then worship those things as God. All right. Now, what do we mean is by worship? Again, earlier in, at the beginning of the program, I talked about how we throw words around in religion land, and we don't often really think about what they mean. You know, we talked about you know we're, we're trying to still dissect what sacrifice means. Well, what does worship mean? What's worship all about? Well, worship is just basically that which we are willing to bow down to. And what do I mean by bow down to? Well, here's an easy way to understand it. There are three great acts of worship in the Bible. The, the, at least is the ones I think that are most illustrative. One comes from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, when Jeremiah says, I will not, I say, I will not mention him anymore. But then it becomes like a fire burning within me. I can't hold it in. And so Jeremiah then against his own desires has to go out and proclaim the prophecies that he's gotten from God. And so obeying God, doing what God wants him to do, 
That's what worship is. That's the third greatest act of worship. Here's the second greatest act of worship. It comes from the Gospel of St. Luke. When the archangel Gabriel appears to our blessed mother and proposes to her that she become the mother of Jesus, what does she say? I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. That is the second greatest act of worship in the Bible. What's the first greatest act of worship in the, in the Bible? It comes from the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so when Jesus lays his life and his will and his desires completely at the disposal of the Father, no matter what's going to come his way, that's what worship is. All right. And so whenever we find ourselves willing to lay everything on the line for something, that is what we worship. All right. So when you have someone that's willing to work themselves to death so that they can build up, you know, their whatever it is their little private little kingdom is, whether it's a business, a career, whatever the case might be, you know, that is in essence kind of an act of worship. You know, I'm, I'm going to pick on the cattlemen here a little bit, not, only, not because they're bad people, they're great people, but because we're talking about animal sacrifices. And, and, you know, the closest thing we have now in our times are people who earn their living by raising, you know, cattle primarily in our culture, but also, you know, sheep and things like that. But um, when, when you look at it, it'd be easy for a cattleman, for example, to get up in the morning and go out and survey his herd. And especially, you know, if it's in the springtime and there's lots of green grass and everything. And, you know, the cows and the young calves are out there and the calves are, you know, frolicking around like calves do. And, the, you know, the cows are, you know, laying on the, on the ground, chewing their cud and everything. And the, the, the cattleman looks at that and says, yes. And he kind of takes a sense of, 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 of satisfaction in it because, and he might be tempted to say to himself, well, of course that's a good looking herd. Who's the guy who gets up in the middle of the night during calving season to go out and you know make sure that all the cows are throwing their calves the way they should, that the coyotes don't come and get them and things like that. You know, I'm the one that keeps an eye on them. I'm the one that when they're sick, I call the vet. You know, I'm the one who, of course it's a good looking herd. I'm the one that did all this work. Well, again, in a certain sense, then, what the guy is doing is he's worshiping the work of his own hands. And again, the only, again, the only reason why I bring up cattlemen and ranchers is because we're talking about animals like we were in the Old Testament. But like I just said a few minutes ago, it can be the same thing for any one of us. You know, I'm the one who worked hard and built up this business. I'm the one who went to school and earned this advanced degree. I'm the one who did this and so on. Well, what the idea behind the sacrifices were then, if you go back to what God does to the Egyptians in, um, in the book of Exodus, whenever he visits his judgment upon the gods of the Nile, the river itself and the frogs, when he visits his judgment upon Apis on the bull god by diseasing all the cattle of the Egyptians and so on, what God is reminding the people of is, is that these things are not God, I am. Then with the Hebrews, because the Hebrews themselves having been brought up in this particular society and this particular culture and seeing the, you know, being immersed in Egyptian culture and seeing the, the way the Egyptians worship these foreign, you know, these, these pagan gods, to them it's like, well, the Egyptians do it. You know, I guess it can't be too bad. The Egyptians are very successful and so on. And so then later on with the golden calf in Exodus 32, um, that, that just kind of shows that the, the Israelite people are not really quite re yet ready for this relationship that God's calling them into. And so the reason why God requires the animal sacrifices is he is telling the, the, the Hebrew people, you are going to take and you are going to slaughter 
and you are going to sacrifice to me that which you are tempted to worship as God. And that, folks, is the whole point of this particular installment of Double-Edged Sword. This is why and how the sacrifices make sense. In that, in the Old Testament, God was telling the Hebrew people, because the thing you have to realize, just like now, in Old Testament times, a herd of livestock, that was money in the bank. Um, the reason why it wasn't money in the bank was because they didn't have money and they didn't have banks. You know, there was a few people running around that might have had some gold and silver and everything. But for the most part, most people's wealth was measured in livestock, you know, animals on the hoof. It was measured in, in clothing, in, in textiles, in, in fabrics that they had. It was basically measured in commodities and things that could be immediately used. And so just like today, you know, if you, you know, going back to our cattlemen and ranchers, you know, when, when the rancher goes out and looks at his cows, he doesn't see a bunch of nice brown and black furry animals with big, cute you know, eyes looking up at him. He sees stacks of $100 bills with legs that go moo, all right? Um, he sees, you know, this is his livelihood. This, this is his money in the bank. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the same thing if you have someone who's selling whatever it is they're selling. If they have a, a, a shop where they sell whatever it is they sell, whether it's auto parts or flowers or bread, you know, it's a bakery or whatever. You know, the, the, when the man, when the owner sees the things on the shelf for sale, he doesn't necessarily just see the goods. He sees, you know, that's my income. That's what's going to that's what's gonna pay my bills and keep my family fed. So again, there's nothing wrong with any of this in and of itself. Um, in fact, most of it's very honorable and laudable. You know, when, um, when John Paul II wrote his encyclical on human labor, you know, he praised, you know, the things that, that we do to um, support ourselves and support our families and human cleverness and, and, and our crafts and the various things that we do. There's nothing wrong with that until it comes to the point that we start to worship it as God. And so that's why God then would require the ancient Hebrews to slaughter these animals because he knew that they were constantly tempted to worship these things as some kind of a false god. And so God says, you will take these things that you are tempted to worship, and then you will slaughter them, and you will, you will sacrifice them to me, and that way you will be reminded that I am God, and that bull or that cow is not, all right? Now, it's sort of the same thing then when we come to our own times. Let's go to the time of Jesus, because we've already seen in the Old Testament where there was a significant kind of pushback to the idea of the sacrifices, mostly because people weren't offering the sacrifices with a sense of humility. They weren't coming up to God and offering the sacrifice and saying, you know, with all of my heart, God, I offer this to you because I know that you are God and whatever it is that I'm offering up to you is not. That was supposed to be the, the, the spirit behind it. And instead, as we saw in Amos, it was just, well, you know, when, when do these senseless little religious holidays get over with so we can get back to the real business of life, which is business, all right? Or um, as we saw in, the, in um, the book of the prophet Isaiah, you know, where people are just bringing in these sacrifices but not doing it with, with the right heart. That was a problem with Cain and Abel. You know, Cain would bring his sacrifices to God and Abel would bring his. Abel brought his sacrifices to God with a, with a true sense of gratitude to, for what God had given him. Cain just did it kind of as a business relationship. It's like, okay, here, here's your sacrifice. Now can I go? You know, it's kind of, again, it's sort of the same thing about, you know, people with their minimalist attitude about coming to Mass and practicing their faith. Well, in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 12, we have this. It says, one of the teachers of the law um, came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? 
Now, by asking Jesus which is the most important commandment, that's kind of a loaded question because it's kind of like in our own times. You know, if you find out that someone is pro-life, um, probably that person is going to be also opposed to the so-called same-sex marriage. Also, you know, that person is probably going to be opposed to the death penalty and things like that. And so by, by getting them to speak on one, you can kind of figure out what they think about other things. And so the guy comes up to Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment? And then Jesus answered, this is the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Well, that's nothing new. That's just the great Shema from the book of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, whenever Moses reminds the people of their monotheism. And so the great Shema, the, this is kind of the Jewish version of the Our Father. Any, any good Jew worth his salt is going to recite this prayer half a dozen times a day. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. you know, hear, O Israel. Here in Hebrew also means obey. So obey, O Israel. The Lord our God is the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But then Jesus says, and this is the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that comes from the book of Leviticus chapter 18. And so what, what Jesus does is he takes the love of neighbor and elevates it up with the love of God. And he says there is no command greater than these. And so what was new about Jesus' two commandments is, is that he, he, he said, you know, you cannot love God without loving your neighbor, that the two have to go hand in hand. Well, then the teacher of the law says, well said, teacher, you are right in saying that God is one, there's none other but him, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to ask them any more questions. Well, we can see there again, you can see that there, there's this tension that existed even back in those days between the idea of offering a sacrifice as opposed to doing, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the right mindset and the right way of thinking that the, that the sacrifice was supposed to lead us into. And so there were folks who would just offer the sacrifices just because that's what we do, but there are other folks that would do it and um, really, really look to become a better person, a more godly person because of it. And so when we fast forward now to our own times, now that we've done all this homework about what the, the sacrifices in the old days were all about, now we look at our own times in, in the here and the now. What about the, the sacrifices that we're expected to do? Well, first of all, let's talk about the sacrifice of the mass. At one time, you know, if you're probably 60 years old and older, you know that they, you know, that was just, just normal conversation. That was normal, the normal way that Catholics talked. You know, we say, well, we have the sacrifice of the mass. And you read a religion book, the sacrifice of the mass, sacrifice of the mass. Along came the 60s and 70s when everything kind of came unraveled. And one of the things they did back in those days, one of the huge mistakes they made, not because Vatican II said to do this, but because what a bunch of people thought they wanted Vatican II to say. Again, if you go back and read the documents of Vatican II, you will nowhere find this. But what some people were trying to say is, well, no, sacrifice the mass. That's old school. That's, you know, we don't believe that anymore. What the mass is about, it's about meal sharing and storytelling. You know, we come together and we tell our stories from the Bible, and then we share this, this, this symbolic meal together you know, the bread and wine of the Eucharist. And they, they chuck the idea of sacrifice. Well, the thing of it is, the, the meal aspect of Eucharist is very real. And I'm not, and, you know, we don't, we don't want to chuck that out. We make the same mistake they made back in the 60s and 70s. But the mistake they made back in the 60s and 70s was they made it an either-or proposition. It's either sacrifice or meal. 
And if you call it sacrifice, you're just out of touch, so forget about that, so it has to be meal. And in fact, what the church teaches is no, is that it's sacrifice and meal. It is a sacrificial meal, and the two have to fit together. And so what is the sacrifice? Well, again, as we just demonstrated a few minutes ago, the idea behind the sacrifice is we sacrifice to God that which we are tempted to worship as God, which is less than God. Okay? I'm going to say that again. What we are called to do to this very day, and make no mistake about it, God still demands sacrifice, that we are to sacrifice to God that which is less than God, which we are tempted to worship as God. Okay, And once we can understand that, then everything starts making sense. Because even back in the days, in, in the Old Testament days, as we saw, as we read through the book of the prophet Amos and Isaiah and the, and the Psalms, that what God wants is a sincere and humble heart. He wants a contrite heart. He wants a repentant heart. And if the way to get that means that we have to sacrifice back in those days, what we thought, what what we would be tempted to worship as God, that is the work of our own hands, livestock, well, then that's what we did. Well, now we come to the Christian era and we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, when Jesus sacrifices himself on the cross, again, this is one of those deals where you're kind of, you know, a lot of people, especially people that like to um, to really just sort of eschew and, and, to, and to scorn religion, they go, well, what kind of a God is that that requires his son to suffer this brutal, brutal um, death on a cross? I don't want no part of a God like that. Well, that's because they don't understand what the idea of sacrifice is. In that when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you know, he, it looks like he's just sort of being whisked away by the currents of history by all kinds of, of um, factors and, and, and variables beyond his control, when in fact he's in control of all of it. As he says in the Gospel of St. John, I have the, the ability to lay my life down, I freely lay it down, I freely take it up again. And so whenever to the bystanders it looks like total chaos, Jesus is allowing himself to be, the, be on the receiving end of all this human hatred and violence and chaos so that once he takes all that upon himself, as unjust and unfair as it is, then by his power as God, when he rises again on Easter Sunday, then he shows that, you know, I've beaten that. And if you believe me, you can beat it too. What he offers himself to God, to his father, the sacrifice of himself that he offers, that he's offering for all of us, because he himself, of course, is not rebellious and prideful and so on. But he's taking all the rebellion and pride of humanity upon himself and saying, I will suffer for this. And so then he, he does what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be sacrificing daily that which is less than God, ourselves, which we are tempted to worship as God which is ourselves, because the false God, ever since the endarkenment, which some people call it the enlightenment, I call it the endarkenment, ever since the endarkenment of the 18th century, people have been sitting there thinking, well, because of our advances in science and medicine and technology and so on, we're not accountable to any God anymore. You know, we, we do our own thing, we call our own shots. Well, that's been to our great detriment. And so the, the sacrifices that we're called to do to this day then is to the, the sacrifice we're called to put on the altar and to kill violently if necessary is the God of self. And how do we sacrifice the false God of self? How do we submit the false God of self to the, to the judgment of the true God of heaven, the way that God sent his judgment upon the false gods of the Egyptians? Well, by, for example, maybe being patient. You know, there's that person at work that I just can't stand being around, 
our chemistry just doesn't mix. You know, she don't like me. I don't like her. He don't like me. I don't like him, whatever the case might be. But we have to work together. And so I will force myself, if necessary, to be kind and cordial around this person. I will not take part in, in defaming gossip behind this person's back as much as I would like to, you know, things like that. Or, you know, maybe it's my greed, you know, because greed is just, when you look at the seven deadly sins, all these are, the seven deadly sins are sacraments to the God of self, all right? So if, if we look at the sin of greed, well, what is the sin of greed? Greed is the desire to acquire things without limit just because I want more. And why? Because that would feed the God of self. And so what's the, what's the antidote? What's the sacrifice to the, to the false sacrament of greed? It's generosity. So that when someone calls and wants my help with something and they want, to help, they want me to help them move or, you know, I have an aging parent that I have to take care of, you know, things like that, by freely giving of my time and my abilities and my resources and so on, that's how I'm making a full frontal assault on that sin of greed, all right? And we can do any others. You know, we can look at envy, sloth, lust, any of these other sacraments to the false god of self, and we look at the opposing virtues you know, the opposing virtue of lust is chastity and purity. Um, the opposing virtues to the big one, the king of all the false sacraments, the false god, the king of, of these sacraments, pride, the worst one. The, the antidote to that is humility, to humbly acknowledge God is the source of everything that I have and everything that I am. It's, it, these are the kind of sacrifices that God demands of us, and make no mistake about it. You know, we're not, you know, sacrificing animals to God anymore. There's no question about that. But we definitely have to be sacrificing those parts of ourselves which are less than God, which we are tempted to worship as God. You know, again, this, this is the glory of Catholic Radio. It gives us a chance to go back and really kind of pick this stuff apart in, in, in detail. And um, I hopefully now the idea of sacrifice makes a little more sense to you than it did when we first got started. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the pastor at St. Joseph's Parish here in Hayes, Kansas, as well as the chaplain at the Como Catholic Campus Center. And you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program on KBDM 88.1 FM and KRTT, also 88.1 FM. We've got the same frequency in, Garden, in, in Great Bend as well as in Hayes, which is kind of a sort of an interesting thing. It's kind of convenient that way. And so we're glad you're able to tune in today. I always invite people to go to our website at um, KV, as in Victor, kvdm.org, and check out the Double-Edged Sword part of the website. There are archived shows there. If you missed one in the past or if you just kind of tuned into Double-Edged Sword, I, I do get emails and do kind of get um, feedback from actually from people all over the country saying they stumbled across these things and they like listening to what Father Josh and myself have to say on this program. And so, again, you know, you can go back and listen to archived um, chapters or, or, or editions of the program and you can listen to those at your leisure. Also, then you can feel free to email the station or call the station if you have an idea for a double-edged sword program. Um, give us a call and I'll be happy to do the homework and try to work that up into a program for you. So again, we thank you for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword on KRTT and KBDM 88.1 FM, the voice of divine mercy for the greater Ellis and Barton County metroplexes. And uh, we'll be looking forward to spending some more time with you sometime in the future. So for now, goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 